Quick question about growing uh, wine grapes. How long does it take to grow them? You know, how many years until they bear the fruit? And are there any interesting uh, intricacies of growing wine grapes in particular? So that you're allowing the plant to put its resources into growing the structure and building a strong and healthy plant before you start allowing it to divert its resources into reproduction. It's possible for a plant to actually reproduce itself to death. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Surviving Hard Times podcast and the Finding Genius podcast. I have two guests today, uh, Jim Kamas. He's an associate professor and extension fruit specialist director at Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Viticulture and Fruit Lab. And I also have J.C. Lewis. Uh, she's a program manager also at the uh, Viticulture and Sustainable Fruit Lab. So we're going to talk about their research and uh, field work. So both of you, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, maybe, JC, could you go first and uh, let me know a little, little bit about your background, and then let's talk about the work that you're doing today. Uh, sure. So 
My background is um, initially in ecology. I did some of my graduate work in ecology before coming over into horticulture. Right now, I'm working as the program manager for the AgriLife Extension Viticulture and Sustainable Fruit Cloud Research Program, as you mentioned. I guess in addition to managing the day-to-day operations at the lab, I'm involved in a number of sustainable research projects for principally for wine grapes and also perennial fruit crops. I have additional responsibilities for extension and educational outreach to producers and stakeholders. Uh, My particular interests are in understanding and leveraging ecological processes in the management of perennial cropping systems, food security, um, protected cultivation to increase production and sustainability in fruit crops, and um, increasing on-farm resilience with diversification. Okay. And and Jim, what about yourself? Yeah, I started, I have a bachelor's degree and master's degree in horticultural sciences from A&M. Started working in perennial fruit crops in Texas in 1978. I was an instructor and research associate in the horticulture department, working in fruit breeding and variety development. Uh, also started working again with wine grapes back in 1978, propagating some of the first vinifera grapes that were planted in the, in the high plains. I was a commercial peach grower for 10 years. Uh, in 1988, I was offered and accepted as a, a job as a grape specialist for Cornell University and later for both Cornell and Penn State in the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program. In 1996, I was offered a chance to come back to Texas. So I've been first an assistant professor, now associate professor in the department, working in perennial crops, just like JC, primarily with with wine grapes. Peaches are kind of my first love. Wine grapes are maybe what I know best, but uh, uh, we really like working in a lot of perennial crops, especially those that we can have some reduced inputs in. So uh, JC and I have similar interests. Okay. Yeah, I haven't spoken to anyone much about uh, wine grapes. Would it be okay to talk about that for a while? Because I figure it'd be interesting. Sure, you bet. All right. So, um, what what kind of projects are important right now surrounding wine grapes? What's um, what's unique and different about them, and what are you working to figure out? Jesse, why don't you talk about what you're doing currently, and I'll talk about past history. Oh, um, well, you know, there there's several things that are that are going on currently. I guess my most uh, I'm focused right now primarily on two different types of biological control or management strategies for a disease of wine grapes or grapes in general, actually called Pierce's disease. The disease is a vector-borne pathogen. It's a bacterial pathogen, Xylella fastidiosa. Um, That particular pathogen also impacts other fruit crops and some nut crops. Well, as a matter of fact, even some grain. So it's a pretty widespread pathogen, but it has several different subspecies and it's probably species limited in those subspecies. Uh, The two projects that I'm working on, one is testing the efficacy of a viral phage that is currently on the market for control of the pathogen in grapes. And another project that I'm working on is utilizing natural ecological systems of biodiversity to dilute the pathogen in the environment Therefore, hopefully, you know, the idea being that you would decrease risk to grape production systems. Well, a quick question about growing uh, wine grapes. How long does it take to grow them? You know, how many years until they bear the fruit? And are there any interesting uh, intricacies of growing wine grapes in particular? Yeah, sure. So wine grapes, it, it varies. It varies by site and it varies by varietal. But we would say that a wine grape will typically come into maturity at about the fourth leaf or year four would you when you would you agree with that Jim yeah third or fourth leaf uh, fourth leaf is usually full crop um any anyone have an indication of um what's going on the first year the second year third year 
you know, what's different about wine grapes and why, how do they know and what's changed about them so that they, they say, okay, this year is we produced the grapes and last year we didn't. And what changes it's, about the plant? Yeah, it's just a matter of maturity. And, and vine size. The, the, the more annual growth a vine puts, gets, puts on a, the previous year, it's an indication of its potential to bear a crop the coming year. So we just have to build a vine for the first couple of years. Uh, then we usually set a small crop in the third year. And by the fourth year, if things are right, you're in full production. And, and hopefully, you know, wine grapes, uh, our blocks are typically lasting 20, 25 years before something brings them down and we have to replant. Oh, wow. So I guess there's just some critical mass or volume to the plant where it knows, okay, this year we're going to produce grapes. Like, how do you think this transition occurs? Well, again, the first years we're trying to get them up on the wire, produce a, a permanent growth structure, a trunk, cordon, spurs, and then once a vine, and again, we... We judge vines by how much annual pruning weight they produce. If they produce a pound of annual pruning weight, they're probably you know, capable of producing half a crop. If they're two and a half to three pounds of annual prunings, then they're ready for a full crop. And it's with any perennial crop, you're always balancing this year's crop versus next year's crop. And because not only are we growing the fruit that is hanging on the vine this year, but we're also growing the wood that will be responsible for the following year's crop. So, uh, you know, overproduction, you have poor quality fruit and a, and a vine that's not healthy. Underproduction, you don't have much much money and you have a vine that's overly vigorous. So it's, it's always a balancing act trying to uh, uh, couple uh, reproduction with uh, vegetative growth. Right. And I think um, maybe one of the, what, what you're getting at here is how does the plant know? The plant doesn't know. It's a matter of whether or not the plant is physically large enough and mature enough to divert resources to reproduction. And there you will see on some of those younger vines an attempt to reproduce a little bit. And typically you wouldn't allow that to happen. So if you see a second leaf or a third leaf vine trying to put on a crop, uh, depending on the vine, it's common to go in and go ahead and remove that crop so that you're allowing the plant to put its resources into growing the structure and building a strong and healthy plant before you start allowing it to divert its resources into reproduction. It's possible for a plant to actually reproduce itself to death if you allow it to reproduce too much early on, because it, it depending on the variety, some could utilize all of their resources into reproduction and not have the resources necessary to survive the winter and into the next year. Oh, wow. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. You know, and, and what's interesting, I mean, if we take a look at some crops like pears or pecans, we may be looking at eight years before these trees bear their first crop. And Whoa. that's really why sustainability is so important in perennial cropping systems, because you're looking at managing crop in a given location for a long period of time. So you've got a lot of money invested in a lot of time invested in it before it even begins to return it. So you want to make sure things are right. And so really the kind of the cornerstone of any kind of sustainable production is site selection, making sure you're on a site that is going to be suitable over the long run. So if I go to a vineyard, will there be um, 
grapes that are, you know, zero, one, two, three, four years old and up? Do they, you know, do they take part of the field and they always have younger ones up and coming to replace the older ones in case something happens or? They're usually managed by blocks. Say you, you know, managed by blocks. Say you have a four acre variety, a block of a given variety. And for whatever reason, you know, the vines have have trunk disease, the the vines are being struck by one malady or another. It may be the, the, you know, the decision of the grower. Okay, next year, we're going to pull that out. So you'll always have some producing and you'll, you'll, you'll replace blocks slowly over time. It's, and the same thing is true of a vine. If you have a trunk or a cordon, you know, it, it, something may, uh, trunk disease may happen. You may have mechanical injury or something. And so you're, you're, you're constantly in the, in the act of renewing either a vine or a block of, of, of grapes. Have people looked into trying to speed this up so they can get, uh, you know, a grape vine to produce within, let's say, two years instead of four? Uh, of course. And, but, uh, and again, some varieties can do that, like the variety we grow here, Grenache. Uh, we typically hang a little bit of a crop, like a ton an acre, in the second growing season. We'll plant the vine, grow it for a year, and then the next year we'll have a ton an acre, which isn't a big crop. Again, we're looking for sustainability. We're looking at four to five tons per acre of premium quality fruit and still allowing the vine to be have vegetative balance. So, yeah, um, and other varieties like Cab Sauvignon may be a little slower to produce. Something's a little less vigorous. So, you know, and that's kind of the trick here is understanding what varieties are suitable and what varieties are suitable in my area may not be what's suitable uh, 300 miles to the north. So it's and, and that's kind of what we think of the cornerstone of sustainability. It's it's very site specific. It's grower specific, site specific and crop specific. Is, um, I don't know, is it all worth it to try to grow grapes in a greenhouse? Does anyone do that or is that like uh, anathema to the industry? I don't think in a greenhouse, JC is, is exploring protected cultivation. By that, we mean either some kind of screens or some kind of a hoop house that's not necessarily heated, but it gives you some protection from the element. But anybody that's ever grown grapes in a greenhouse knows it's a lot harder to grow grapes in a greenhouse. Diseases, insects pop up because you're in, in an artificial environment that have no natural predators, no natural competition. So if, if you grow grapes in a greenhouse, one day you, you, they're looking good. The next day they're covered in powdery mildew. And it doesn't really happen that fast uh, out in nature. So, you know, it's, we can protect them from, from the, the cold element or, and, and keep them watered. But uh, disease and insect pressure is usually much greater inside a greenhouse than it is outside. You know, the other question on that would be, what would be the point? Why would you want to do that? You know, a crop that can be grown well outdoors and that takes a lot of space. Could you imagine the amount of in- infrastructure when, you know, grapes are grown by the acre. So can you imagine the amount of infrastructure in greenhouse that it would require to try to grow them in a greenhouse for, for very little advantage? Yeah, no, that's true. You would need like a, yeah, a monstrous building in order to do that. So that's true. Yeah. Hmm. And, and like um, all agriculture, I mean, Farming grapes, from farming peaches, all of this is, is only moderately profitable. I mean, that's what growers are striving for, to, to reduce their risk, uh, to find a niche, an edge, uh, either superior site or variety or growing or cultural practice, something to uh, just help make them or ensure profitability. You know, and when we talk about sustainability, there's, there's, there's always three legs to the stool. Number one, it has to be, you know, we hope it to be environmentally sustainable so that we not only don't damage the environment, but we enhance the environment. Number two, it has to be socially equitable. We don't want to take advantage of anybody and, you know, excessive, you know, labor demands. And then it has to be economically viable to be sustainable. So uh, that's, we're always looking for a better way to do it, reduce inputs and and maintain uh, profitability and, and fruit quality.
what in particular do grapes uh, need for input? You know, like I heard tomatoes are really greedy for nitrogen. Um, what about wine grapes? What are the particular things that they need? Well, we don't really put that much nitrogen in wine grapes. I mean, if anything, we're trying to slow the vigor down again to re- achieve a balanced, uh, a balanced plant. In in our part of the world, fungal disease pressure is is relatively high, and again, that's one of the ways we try and help growers understand what their practices and their choices uh, do. Not only in terms of protecting their crop and protecting their vine, but in also nominalizing the impact on the environment. That's that's really a lot of what we do is try and help growers understand that. So what are some of the, I don't know, what, what, what are the companion crops, if any, for wine grapes? Do you have cover crop? Like what are, what are some of the strategies to bolster them against disease and to make sure they're growing well? Well, you're, you're, you know, your most disease resistant plant is always a healthy plant. So first and foremost, we encourage people to grow their plants in a way that um, keeps the plant healthy. So managing crop load for starters, as we talked about earlier, is one way to ensure that a plant is healthy. Jim, do, um, we do cover cropping. Jim, do you want to? Sure, I'm, I'm a big proponent a- of cover cropping. And, and, in our, and again, depending on where you're at in the world, what time of the year the cover crop grows. For us in the South here, uh, winter cover crops are ideal. And again, if you take a look at farming all across the Southern United States, what is the single most limiting factor in our soils? It's organic matter, because with our heat and sometimes rainfall, organic matter, dissipates rather quickly. So the best thing we can do is to continue to, to uh, include organic matter in our, in, our, in our production systems. The question then becomes, what's the most cost-effective way of doing that? You know, hauling in compost or mulch is great, but if, only if it's going to be economically sustainable for, for the grower. And again, that depends on the grower and, and a lot of different individual circumstances. For us, though, best way to do it is to grow a cover crop like annual ryegrass in the winter only apply small amounts of nitrogen and grow as much as organic matter as possible because all of the things that, that make soil, uh, soils rich with biodiversity is organic matter. I mean, talk about adding, you know, different growth regulators, cytokinins or, you know, humic acid. Well, the soil has the capability of producing all those. What they need is the raw material and that raw, raw material is organic matter. Yeah. Tight soils, compacted soils, Boy, cover crops are the best way to address that. And it's, it's not very expensive. And it's, I mean, it's, there's nothing bad about it. Are there um, unusual places that people have tried to grow grapes where it's actually worked? Or are they more in the traditional, uh, I, I guess, well, where are they grown traditionally? It's um, just moderate climates or what are the factors that make them grow well? Well, if you take a look worldwide where they're grown, they're typically grown in an area with a Mediterranean climate, like most of Europe. California, where they have cool, wet winters and warm, dry summers. And the warm, dry summers are good from a disease management point of view because you, we have less fungal disease pressure the less it rains. Now, con- conversely, I mean, we, we don't have a, a, a Mediterranean climate here in Central Texas where we, where we work. We have a, a continental climate. So we're, we are subject to the extremes, hot and cold, wet and dry. One year we may have 60 inches of rainfall. And in this last year for us, we probably had about seven, eight inches of rainfall in the same area. So it's been, we're coming out of a very extended drought and it's been really tough on vines. Yeah. What happens in a year like this year where it was super hot for a long time and dry, then all of a sudden it rained, 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 rained. I see like in, in Austin where I'm at, you know, now that the wildflowers all over the place and a lot of stuff growing, <laughs> right. you know, at the last second, but, um, what is it? What happens to a crop like grapes when you get strange weather like that? 
Well, a, a couple of things. Well, number one, when you when we use drip irrigation to provide supplemental rain or supplemental water to a vineyard. Now, but when you apply water to, to in, in in a couple of spots with drip applications, the vine has the capability of moving that water around the plant to keeping all of its tissue alive. But for root systems, for example, if you don't have water in the root tip soil interface, that root tip is not functional. The only place water and nutrient is absorbed is through new root tips. So when it doesn't rain like this, we can apply water to keep vines alive, but because there's no root activity, vines aren't growing very fast. So we have a canopies this year that are a fraction of what they normally are, which means when we saw this coming, we had to get in and drop fruit to try and balance the fruit load with the vines capability. You know, and this was a brutal year. The vines took a beating, they're small. Uh, some places didn't have a crop at all. And that's, that's a complicated situation, but Drought really messes with plant growth regulator systems, and a lot of vineyards just drop fruit. But what we're glad to see, since the rain for us has started after harvest, which is a good thing, because we're not dealing with fruit rot issues, but now we can start to, you know, again, have vines, roots start to work again, start to forage for nutrients in the soil. We can think about getting in and planting a cover crop where we might have a rain to bring it in, bring it up. So, you know, we're always farming in cycles. You know, this is one of the four great droughts in our recorded history here. 1918, 1956, 2011, or 2011, and 2022. Horrible droughts. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're coming out of it, and we're just thankful for the rain. Yeah, how do you know? I mean, is there any way to know next year what the climate will be like? I mean, yeah, if you have I guess not. Ball, <laughs> there's no way. No, there's, there's none. You have to, you know, you have to prepare for wet years and be willing to deal with dry years. Uh, hot, cold, no, it's every year's different. We have very few years where we consider growing conditions to be ideal there's always something and that's 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 the challenge of, of farming in this area it's it's nature is 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 pretty rough yeah that's you one know. of the um, the big challenges is the level of risk that producers have to take one year to the next not being able to make those kinds of predictions that uh, people that are not involved with agriculture sometimes don't understand or realize that uh, every year you know it's it it could be feast or famine. You may have a great crop and make a lot of money the next year. You may you may make nothing. And a lot of it has to do with the sustainability wow. to make those kinds of predictions. Yeah, for example, I mean, again, peaches were my first first love. And in Texas, you know, you can expect to lose a crop to spring frost in peaches every five to six years. So some years, those averages, you know, you'll have three out of five years you freeze out. And then you'll have a run of six or seven years you don't freeze out. Or you may not have enough winter chilling. So there's always something. And that's one of the things Chase is working with in terms of uh, protected cultivation, trying to help growers, you know, manage the the extremes of the weather and uh, still produce a crop. It seems pretty scary because, uh, you know, if something really goes wrong and I don't know, you lose the crop totally, it'll be years to get back to it. I mean, what what do you do? There's a reason I'm still not growing peaches. I I froze out three years in a row. So, and older kid's mom was pregnant with my, my oldest son, uh, and I was offered a job by Cornell, and I took it. I just, you know, again, it's managing risk. What can you afford to lose? So, uh, I had to walk away from the orchard I loved in order to uh, to do the right thing. Oh, no. Huh. I mean, what, what can people do, though, if it's, uh, if, like I said, if the weather is just terrible and it's, it threatens to kill everything you have? Well, Find you know- a part-time job in the summer. <laughs> Yeah, or or, you know. or plant some of the other crops, annual crops like vegetables or tomatoes or something, you know, provide a small income. Or the other thing that I think Jason would point to is, is diversification. Yeah, Jason, let's talk about that. What what does that mean? Yeah, 
So essentially what that means is for, especially for smaller producers that are going to be less resilient financially to get against those big losses. One of the things that I've worked with producers with is diversifying their operations so that rather than depending on a single crop for their entire livelihood, if you can spread that crop out to several different crops, hopefully crops that have, um, you know, that mature at different times of the year, that have fruit at different times, you know, across the season, you're sort of uh, hedging your bet a little bit. Whereas if you get a late freeze, say for instance, in your peach crop, okay, and you knock out all of your peaches and you don't have a peach crop that year, well, maybe you have a berry crop that comes on later in the year. And that may not take the place of your peach crop, but maybe it's enough to keep you going into the next year. So if you can diversify with several different crops or alternatively, you can diversify a single crop, but with multiple varieties that are potentially have, you know, different chilling hour requirements, you know, that you can expect um, bloom and harvest it, you know, to be staggered a little bit. Mm-hmm. Those are different ways that you can sort of guard against those big losses that you might. Or, or put them in high tunnels. Right. And, and, and of course, and then protected cultivation is then another it, outside of just diversification is another way of hedging your bet a little bit so that you that gives you the ability to control and manipulate the climate a little bit. And sometimes it's just that little bit that is enough to make the, the difference between no crop and a full crop. Is there any way to, um, I don't know, is there any way to protect fruit trees? You know, what if you put like, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was talking about. So, so protected cultivation is where we grow crops in some sort of a protected structure. What I work with typically is something called a high tunnel. So think of a greenhouse, except it's open on both ends and it's covered in plastic rather than, you know, some sort of a solid glazing material. And those types of structures will allow you minimally to um, heat the tunnel on days when it gets exceptionally cold. So if you're coming into spring, for instance, this is how it's typically used. If you're coming into spring and you have a crop that is an early spring crop, it's already in bloom and you're gonna get that freeze. You can close those tunnels down, put heaters in it and keep it just warm enough that it saves that crop. Um, and then you pull the plastic up later in the year when it gets hot, cause you don't wanna overheat the tunnel. So that's, that's one way of doing it. Another example is with crops that can't take the heat. So I have another uh, production system that I'm working with right now in raspberries, where rather than covering a tunnel with plastic and trying to keep it warm, we're covering a tunnel with shade to try to keep it cool enough to be productive. Mm. So these are just ways that you can sort of manipulate the the microclimate just around your crop in order to just change atmospheric and light and, you know, heat conditions enough that it will allow you to produce a crop in a place and during a time when you might otherwise not have been able to produce one. Any other strategies? I mean, these seem like uh, basic, but uh, I guess, yeah, they would help. Are you able to um, provide a little bit of heat, let's say to a hoop house, if it was really cold, even yeah, though the sides are open? Or... Mm-hmm. No, you well, can. Yeah, first thing you do is drop the, drop the plastic on the sides. You try and, yeah. and, and, and again, that's can be something that can be done relatively quickly with, a crew of maybe four people. We have one grower. How many acres does Russ have under high tunnel? Three, four? Something like that. I'm not sure exactly. And they can get through and drop the sides and protect those tunnels in a day. They see a cold front coming. So it's it's fairly oh. efficient. system. And inside oh, of high good. tunnels, they're growing a high density. They're I mean, they're doing everything right, uh, optimal conditions, and they can produce considerably more 
fruit than a grower with traditional growing practices can. Yeah, so that also, when you can control those microclimate conditions, you can also increase plant density. So you can get more crop out of the same square footage than you can growing out in the open. Oh, is that done by growing in these these uh, high tunnels? Mm-hmm. Or can you do it without any of that stuff? You, increased density, you can, you can, but it's it's more challenging. It's more challenging because you don't have the ability to manipulate the microclimate in the same way. Yeah, what are, what are some of the best practices in order to grow as much as you can when it comes to uh, wine grapes? Well, I guess number one, that, that's a fairly complicated question because it okay. d- depends on the kind of wine, you're, the, the variety you're growing and the, the market that you're looking for. If you're looking to grow grapes for a $15 bottle of wine, you know, you could probably hang seven or eight tons an acre and have good quality fruit, a lot of it, and get paid a, a, you know, a pretty good price. But if you're looking at the ultra premium market, you don't want seven or eight tons an acre. You want maybe three and a half or four. So you know, the, the, your yield is down. That means the quality needs to be substantially higher so that you get paid more to offset uh, the loss of that tonnage. So again, it just, it just depends. You know, uh, and, and some wineries will have both tiers. They'll have stuff that's you know, cropped relatively heavily. It's good wine. It's relatively inexpensive. And then they'll have the ultra premium stuff that commands a higher dollar. Yeah, where fruit crops are concerned, but wine grapes are an especially good case of this, you know, more isn't always necessarily better. Your goal isn't necessarily always to produce as large a crop as you can. Again, like Jim said, it's a balance between volume and quality. For almost any crop, typically when you increase the volume of the crop, you may be reducing the quality of the crop. So it's a balancing act, you know, where is it that you, what what is your end goal? you know, when you're making those decisions. And, and again, we live in a land, I mean, we, we deal with extremes here. Say, for example, a peach grower, a normal peach tree, a mature peach tree will typically have about 10,000 blooms per tree per year. And they all bloom at once. If they freeze off, they don't bloom again. So how many fruit do you want on that tree? Probably about four or 500. So, you know, some years you're challenged with knocking 80, 90% of the fruit off after it sets in order for the tree to produce high quality fruit. And, and again, remember what I said earlier, it's a balancing act. And every year we're growing two years crops. We're growing the fruit that's hanging this year. But if we overcrop, there will be very little vegetative growth. So the tree will be in a weakened condition, more susceptible to winter injury and have a very low cropping potential the following year. So it's, it's boy, it's a balancing act. And, and again, when we take a look at the, the challenges, the number one challenge in all of our crops right now is labor. How do you get this done? With, 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 you know, reduced labor pool. And it's, that's the biggest challenge. I mean, 20 years ago, you'd mm-hmm. ask people what was the limiting factor to growing grapes in Texas. They'd say Pierce's disease. Right now, everybody says labor. You just can't, you can't find good skilled labor that you can, you know, that the growers can afford to pay at the price point their wines are currently listed at. Huh. Um, can this be done by a machine or with grapes? You know, wine growing, you have to do it by hand. Like, how is the well? That's a lot of what we've I worked with at Cornell and, and and work that we're continuing to work with growers here. The problem is economy of scale. If you're going to have mechanical pruning, mechanical harvesting, you you need an operation probably of forty acres minimum, sixty five acres probably optimal. And a lot of our vineyards in this area aren't that size. They're five acre, ten acre vineyards, so. You can't afford a mechanical pruner. You can't afford to buy a mechanical harvester, which means everything reverts back to hand or you contract somebody to come in and do that for you. So we're still a growing industry. The Texas Hill Country is the number two 
the second most visited wine destination in the United States, but we're really still a pretty young industry. Yeah. And that issue with labor, that that isn't just a wine grape issue. That's all of um, agriculture in general and horticulture, horticultural production as you know, specifically. And there are some types of crops that just don't lend themselves well to mechanization at all. And uh, in those crops, it, it, it's, it's really a challenge and it really, it, it limits, it's limiting production. Can the, the uh, vineyards get together and have the same personnel work multiple vineyards, especially if they're small or they just don't have enough people that they want to work. So even one vineyard can't get enough people. Well, I hate it when people say that people don't want to work. I don't think that's the case, but one of the challenges that people often don't realize is there's traditionally been this, um, this mindset that agricultural labor is unskilled labor. You can just grab anybody off the street and put them out there and let them do that work. And that just isn't the case. You know, um, most of the unskilled labor in agriculture today is being done either by a machine or a chemical. So what's left is actually skilled labor. And we do not have access to the people that have the skills to do that labor and to do it well and to do it correctly. Um, Part of that is an issue of economics. It's difficult um, to pay somebody enough to make it worth their time and worth their energy to learn those skills and to go out and do that work um, and still be able to be profitable, you know, Um, especially in today's economy when, you know, people can go work at a fast food restaurant for $17 an hour, which I'm in favor of. I have no problem with that, but it's difficult then to get the, get people to come and work in an agricultural situation out in the sun, out in the heat, out in the freezing cold, you know, for at that same, um, for that same level of compensation or sometimes even less. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a real challenge and it's skilled labor that takes, by the way, you know, a couple of years, I think of training really before somebody is at a point where you're able to sort of let them loose in your crop and let them work independently. So it's not, it's not a small investment in time in learning these skills. Hmm. To your point, yes, that is something we're seeing a little bit more here lately. People are developing labor crews. And if you have a small vineyard, you simply call them up and say, hey, can I schedule you guys to come prune my vineyard or can I, you know, come position my canopy or get somebody come help me sucker the the floor? Yeah, that is becoming more and more available. But again, that's kind of part of the maturation of our industry. We're not there yet, but we're growing in that direction. Yeah. So what do you expect uh, for wine prices over, you know, this year and the next few years, it sounds like they're going to go up quite a bit, I guess, because of shortage of labor, then shortage of product and et cetera. That's my crystal ball broke. It's, it's, (laughs) it's, it is hard to tell, you know, it depends on, on what's, how, how's the, how's the consuming public feel? Do they feel that the quality is, is there to demand a command of price? Uh, I don't know. There's a re- I mean, I'm a plant scientist. When you get into economics and predicting price point of wines, I'm I'm way outside my league. No, I, I understand. Well, very good. We covered a lot of stuff. Oh, actually, I have one general question that you'll probably laugh at, but what's the difference between horticulture, viticulture, agriculture, permaculture? There's, a, <laughs> there's like 50 different names. And I just wonder, um, you know, agronomy, et cetera, like what are they all well, kind I'll of different names for the same one. thing? Or? Yeah. Okay, so so agriculture pretty much means all crops, ornamental crops, fiber crops, food crops. Agronomy are typical, typically annual crops, corn, sorghum, cotton, uh, 
things that are field field crops one year you plant them one year you harvest them you plant them again the next year so that's agronomy horticulture can be a combination again of ornamentals fruits and vegetables viticulture is um, a part of horticulture there's another old, old antiquated name for fruit culture called pomology we used to call pomology and viticulture it means fruit trees berries and grapevines but uh it's a good question it's just that some yeah. sciences set themselves apart more than others you have to realize that there's also kind of a cultural influence in this as well that you know that with with if you overcrop peach trees you have smaller peaches the tree may be a little you know may not grow as well but you can still sell those peaches if you overcrop a grapevine and you have really bad quality grapes you're bad quality you can't make good wine out of bad grapes so um there's the, yeah. the, the the quality component in viticulture is all important yeah, I'd say that it's just uh, think of it in terms of like you would the tree of life, you know, agriculture is an overarching term. And that could be plant crops, that could be um, meat crops, you know, all of that uh, eggs, dairy, you know, that all falls under agriculture. You know, and then, um, as Jim said, uh, agronomy typically deals with not only annual crops, but really more specifically grain crops. So um, silage that's being fed to animals as well as wheats, rice. Corn, corn, barley, those crops. Horticultural crops is something that's not a grass or not a grain, typically. So um, some of them are annual, things like, you know, tomatoes, peppers, all of your vegetables, some of your annual fruit crops, um, melons, etc. And then on the other side are the perennial fruit crops, like the ones that Jim and I are more involved with, grapes, berries, tree fruits, tree nuts. And then, of course, you can keep breaking it down further. And then viticulture is more specific to even that. So you just Raisin kind of grapes, wine grapes, juice yeah. grapes, table grapes. So. so you just break it. You're just kind of breaking down like from, and, from and, large scale and to small. Really, the, 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 the biggest difference is if you grow, are your tomato grower and you plant a field of tomatoes and all of a sudden you have a, a big uh, outbreak of tomato spotted wilt. Well, next year you can plant squash, you can plant broccoli, you can plant something else. With perennial crops, we don't have that option. Again, we're managing these crops in a given area over a long period of time, typically 20 years or more. So it's that's that's the stakes get raised there. Are, are growers' instincts to just grow one crop and grow as much of it as possible? Or are they open to growing multiple different crops and uh, you know reducing the possible disease load? Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of our, you know, again, the, the evolution of the fruit industry in this part of the state is, you know, 25 years ago, uh, a lot of people were growing a single crop, putting them in boxes, shipping them to a terminal market in Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, something like that. The demographic, demographics have changed dramatically where the size of the operations have gone down. And in going, instead of being wholesale sellers, wholesale growers, they're now retail growers. So they're selling things on the side of the road because they're providing people with something they can't get in the, in the store, tree ripened fruit that's locally grown, that has optimal quality. And in those situations, sure, you know, if you have, if you have a peach stand and you have blackberries there, somebody's probably going to pick up a pint of blackberries or figs or pears or apples or persimmons. I mean, there's, there's a wide variety of things. And again, the more you do that, the more you can kind of shift the the harvest season. So you keep a crew busy all season long. Uh, You reduce the risk of any single act of nature. So yes, we you see more diversification between you know people that are selling fruit with grape growers. They're typically only selling only growing grapes. Yeah, and it it depends. I think a little bit of maybe what you were getting at is the concept of either 
monocropping or not monocropping or crop rotation. So that's something you can do with annual crops. And yeah, I think most people growing annual crops are absolutely um, utilizing those strategies. But remember with the perennial crop, you can't rotate your crops because your, your crops in the ground for, like Jim said, depending upon what it is anywhere from seven to maybe 20 years or more, say if you're growing pecans. So in those instances, obviously there's not any opportunity for crop rotation and then things like companion cropping or, you know, things that things that you would do outside of a monocrop situation become really complicated because of just your ability to sort of manage the different needs of different types of plants and harvest in a, in a single area. Right. So that's a pretty mm. challenging thing to do in a perennial system. Maybe a good thing to do would be to grow one crop that's very difficult to grow. And then all your companion ones are easy ones. You know, you can still make money off them, but there's like this one that, uh, you know, you're going to put your heart and soul into, but it's very difficult to grow. But the reward is very high. Maybe that's a good way to balance. I don't know. Right. Maybe. I think the real problem, though, sometimes comes into your crops are now competing with one another. You know, you're setting up a situation where one crop is in competition with the other one. For your time, if nothing, your time. Well, not just with your time, but for instance, um, if I have you know, a pe- let's say a pecan orchard. Well, I've got a lot of shade. There aren't very many things I'm going to be able to grow under mature pecan trees, right? So oftentimes it's just when one when one plant or one crop is mature and healthy, it's going to outcompete by various means any other crop that you would try to put in there with. Yeah, it seems like there's just a, I mean, tons to know and it, uh, it encompasses many disciplines in order to have a good a good harvest, a good crop. There's meteorology, there's, uh, you know, there's the soil science, there's, uh, you know, the science of bacteria and viruses and phages, et cetera. There's, there's a ton. There's economics. It's, uh, there's a lot involved, it seems. Yeah, absolutely you know, is. Farmers, you know, farmers are really required to be sort of renaissance people. They have to know a little about a lot of things, you know, to, to make it work. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, both of you, thanks for coming on the podcast. Where where can people find out more about the particular work both of you are doing? Tracy? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we both work for the Texas A&M AgriLife um, Extension Service. You can find us in the work that we do at, I guess you could just uh, Google horticulture, Texas A&M AgriLife. And probably A&M's, uh, the extension service, we're in a, kind of in a, in a shifting mode right now where they're yeah. rebranding a lot of the uh, the web uh, resources. So, but if you if you do a search for Aggie Horticulture, uh, you'll find us and a lot of our colleagues. Hmm. Okay. And then uh, individual growers, are they able to uh, call upon you and con- contract with you and A&M to have you help them? Do you That's do our job. Well? Yeah. 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 That's one of our primary missions. They call, okay. we go. Or Excellent. Excellent. Well, Jim and JC, thanks. Thanks both of you for coming. It's been a great call and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. We appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.